For my upcoming book on reinventing Appalachia, I was researching potential staple crops for the region that helped to build soil while feeding the people who call this beautiful place home. I came across a really interesting organization called Kudzu Culture. Kudzu Culture connects people with kudzu, a fast-growing, edible, leguminous vine native to Asia to grow a regenerative kudzu economy in the southeastern United States. LB, Justin, and Nika, thank you for joining us today and setting the record straight on one of America's most vilified plants. Starting with LB, would you introduce yourselves and share with us what inspires you to start Kudzu Culture? Hi, I'm LB, uh, Director of Kudzu Culture, 501c3 nonprofit, and also co-founder along with Justin Holt and Zev Friedman, uh, who's unable to join us today. I'm a tinker and a fiber artist who became curious about kudzu from a material kind of perspective um, as a fiber, as a composite material, um, first experimenting with a friend, uh, grinding it up and mixing it with other materials to use as filler for sculpture. Um, and then from there, like the plant itself, what followed vines and tendrils and roots and all the ways that it grows, it um, it mimics the the knowledge that goes along with it. So began to learn with it and um, and then met um, had known Justin through mutual friends and then um, started uh, coming to Kudzu camps with. Justin and Zev and learning from them and um, with them and from them um, and along with the Book of Kudzu, which um, is English language text where we learned a lot. And and yeah, and then just um, continuing from there and uh, collaborating with the abundance that the Kudzu now provides us is a good way to face our current ecological reality. And um, that's not to say go out and plant kudzu. We're not saying that. We're saying meet the reality of the abundance of kudzu that's already growing and learn with it and collaborate with it so that it's not spilling out over, but it's more being wrangled through understanding and use. Perfect. And like the plant too, it's like I, I can keep talking about it, keep going on <laughs> and on. So I should, I should, um, we should move on, but I guess thanks for having <laughs> and for having this conversation um, as it is nuanced and layered. Absolutely, thank you. So, Justin, since you're on a a time crunch, could we start uh, get into your background a little bit and just what inspired you to participate with Kudzu Culture? Yeah, um, let's see. So, I first. My first encounter with kudzu was was actually an eradication effort, um, but we didn't actually we didn't look at it that way. I, I was a I was actually apprenticing with Zev, who is is the third kind of founder of kudzu culture as a uh, a budding aspiring professional permaculturist. I'd taken a permaculture design course with him, and then and then spent a year working with him as an apprentice doing all kinds of projects. He had a client in Asheville. Uh, who had, who, who lived next door to a, uh, kudzu patch that had been there since 
the neighbors said probably the 1970s and um it was like many urban kudzu patches kind of used as a as a kind of impromptu dumping ground it was just a very neglected kind of blighted looking space and we were looking for a plant uh, for a place to to grow some crops to have like a small urban farm and so she his client allowed us to to go ahead and remove the kudzu so that we could grow corn and beans and squash and all kinds of other stuff in this kind of traditional Mesoamerican uh mode of growing annuals that we've been exploring called milpa agriculture and uh we decided we would use the book of kudzu which Zev had on the shelf from his parents house he grew up in a kudzu patch in silva north carolina and his his so this goes back uh, a generation at least in, in our group where Zev's dad was actually tinkering a lot with kudzu and figuring out how to use it since the uh I think they moved to their to their place sometime in the 80s um when Zev was a little kid. So they had a book of kudzu and this has kind of been LB mentioned the it's like the bible for us the book of kudzu is so much incredibly useful information from uh, these two authors, a Japanese woman and American man who were married and they've written a few other books that were fairly popular in the seventies, um, on the book of tempeh and the book of tofu. They're also authors of the, um, shirtliff and Ayogi, I think is the, are the two authors last names. There you go. LB's got a copy of it there. Um, so we decided to use the gut with the, with that guidance, uh, dig the kudzu roots. Uh, from this patch and process starch from the roots. That was the first time we tried to do that. So we, we were removing the kudzu and then, and then, uh, using it as we were removing it. That was the kind of initial hook. I was just very, very intrigued by this plant that is, uh, just, you know, so charismatic. You see it everywhere and it's like covering giant trees and, uh, grows so, so quickly and, um, it was just like a hard plant to ignore, even if you don't know anything about plants, which I hardly did at that time in my life. It was like, you just, you know what kudzu is. So one of the things that really jumped out to me in that experience was the soil where kudzu was growing for a few decades uh, compared to the soil in, and you mentioned this in your email, lawns. So I, the, the lawn right adjacent to where the kudzu patch was, where it had been mowed, and there was grass, it was very difficult to get a shovel into that soil. It was like hard packed clay, very, very tight clay, barely a thin layer of topsoil. And then in the kudzu patch, the soil was fluffy and black and just delicious and full of, of nitrogen, um, from the kudzu living and, and, and dying every year, the leaves and the vines and just building, building the, uh, organic content of that soil for decades. And so our corn grew really, really well in that soil. That was, uh, that was the initial hook. And then it was every year since then until, uh, I guess it was 2020 was the year that we did not process kudzu starch. Um, we did. We did. Re- okay. So 2021. So every year until, until 2021, uh, so we did. I've done small, we kept it going. LB kept it alive, right? So kept that, kept that flame burning. It's been so, ongoing. Yeah. 
So we've we've had Kudzu Root Camp every year, and then Kudzu Vine Camp we started doing, and maybe 15 uh, in the summers. And it was informal, kind of just experimenting, and we've done Kudzu Root Camp differently every year. But basically, we would go and, and hang out in Silva, where Zev grew up, for a long weekend or a week, and dig kudzu roots and um, just kind of uh, and, and process them and have this kind of very it, it's it, I have a special place in my heart for kudzu camp and that the feeling of it it's very kind of I don't know I, I think reverent and and just like really celebrating this plant and getting to know it in this kind of uh, very physical way that the process of digging the roots is very labor intensive and then processing the roots to extract the starch is labor intensive and put a lot of sweat into into learning what this plant has to offer and then also really digging into what resources are out there um kind of following leads from what's in in the book of kudzu and then doing a lot of uh research and looking through academic journals and such to to learn about how it behaves in ecosystems and the history of the plant and the different uh, chemical constituents and the roots and the flowers that are used medicinally and all the different uh, other uses for, for livestock fodder and kind of different experimental uses for, for uh, you know, human consumption of different parts of the plants and the cuisine around kudzu starch. And we're just kind of really exploring that and celebrating it in, in uh, kudzu camp, in kudzu root camp and then in kudzu vine camp. And that's been a real education for me in in the kind of culture that forms around a plant. If you look at, you know, Earth-based, the way Earth-based cultures live throughout the world, they have seasonal kind of cycles and relationships with with the plants and other organisms they're working with. And, and um, you know, I, I think that that was an insight for us early on that eventually evolved into form an organization that we called kudzu culture was that like why is kudzu so problematic or, or perceived to be so problematic here in the united states um where you know you go back to where the plant came from and it's a celebrated plant that's been for millennia really important economically and culturally for all kinds of different uses and and the the kind of observation that we made is is that when the plant was brought here, it was extracted from its home place and kind of used as a tool in the landscape that then once conditions changed, people just kind of disregarded. And there was no kind of like cultural relationship building with the plant where there were kind of like, you know, agreements made formed with with the plant to to figure out how we were going to continue to have a good relationship and to really understand what the plant was all about and bring the kind of like all the kind of features of uh of a culture that make something uh make a relationship between a a, a plant and people work so right, something right. Zev talks about often is the, is the kind of the, the way that um plants that are uh really wonderful uh, amazing gifts can turn into poisons if we don't have the culture cultural element that goes with it one great example being uh corn and the way when Europeans first got their hands on corn, they didn't learn from the indigenous people of the Americas about how to nishtamalize the corn, to cook it with wood ashes or lye to bring out the nutritive value and make it more digestible. 
And so people were getting pellagra, eating a lot of corn and not getting uh, enough niacin and basically going insane with this disease. And there are so many other examples of that. Uh, you know, tobacco is a sacred plant to Native Americans and tobacco. We don't we could not call tobacco a sacred plant to uh, you know, most Western contemporary Americans, um, and has not done things that you would call sacred. It's become quite, quite poisonous. So yeah, that's a kind of a rambling way to say that the kudzu culture kind of evolved over a period of, of time wherein we were just kind of slowly, uh, seasonally, almost ritually getting in touch with what kudzu is and what it has to offer and, and, you know, letting ourselves kind of be open to, to learning and changing to have a good relationship with the plant. That's awesome. Perfect. Now, Nika, can you talk about your background with it and what inspired you to be a part of it? Yeah, I'd say I have a newer relationship with kudzu. I'm from New York. I'm not from a region where kudzu is even talked about, known, seen on a daily basis. I moved to Asheville about three and a half years ago and got to meet kudzu firsthand. And I'm a textile artist weaver, felter, um, fiber enthusiast, and fiber kind of gatherer. I bring people together around um, cloth and fiber and fashion. I run an organization called Fiber House Collective, and I was bringing Fiber House Collective down with me. And when I saw kudzu, I saw the vibe, and I said, there's some fiber in there. I think this is something. And then I just went on Google, and I was like, oh, there's some fiber in there. And not only is this a bass fiber, but this Bass fiber has a deep, rich history as a beautiful, amazing, strong, durable fiber, you know, kuzufu in Japan. But when kudzu was brought over to the U.S. to the southeastern area, that knowledge didn't travel with it. You know, and when I read about it, when I first read about it, when I was learning about it, obviously there was, you know, this nemesis narrative, but also it was animal fodder. You know, that was kind of something that kept popping up. That's why it came great erosion control, but there wasn't this conversation around the fiber or obviously the roots either. Um, so I reached, I looked online, I found kudzu culture. I didn't know they were in Asheville. I didn't know where they were based. I think I got LB and I'll be like, oh yeah, we're right here. Um, come by. And that was wonderful. And then life kept going. I did my own studies with um, kudzu processing, um, redding or rotting it to, to, um, get at that beautiful fiber inside. And then I um, found a little place in the mountains in Marshall, North Carolina, that no one wanted and had a was very affordable at my, you know, textile artist um, <laughs> reality because uh, it was Kudzu Mountain. You know, everyone looked at it. It had been on the market forever, <laughs> going down every year, every month, you know, and it was just covered in kudzu is what people saw mind you just the first three acres that had been cleared and then uh, kind of abandoned uh were were um where kudzu was uh kind of blanketing it and then there's the tree line and then the rest of the second generation woods was not interacting with the kudzu right but what people saw was the kudzu oh right Um, and I think that same day I didn't tell LB about it, but LB just texted me, hey, do you want to do some fiber play? When I was like, we hadn't hadn't talked in maybe a year. You know, COVID had happened, life had happened. And I said, I was sitting there amongst the kudzu on on this kudzu mountain, which I was feeling this immense um, gratitude, but also responsibility to, to help bring back into balance. And I Mm -hmm. said, 
I can't believe you're reaching out because I um, was about to reach out to you when I came down from my own headspace into, you know, the reality space of what, what to be done. And LB came by and that was it. And then we did uh, two um, bind camps where kind of Fiber House and my background with um, just fiber in general kind of connected to kudzu culture's deep knowledge of kudzu in general. And, and during our last um, bind camp at um, LB's place, we were able to weave some kudzu cloth yardage together using a mm-hmm. hemp um, warp. And we're really excited about the future of being able to create industrially processed, still small mm-hmm. scale, but industrially processed kudzu so we can use it as a warp thread or a durable thread to create 100%. Oh, wow. That's so, yeah, beautiful. Using it because kuzufu is an amazing um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, 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 reference point, but we're not in Japan and we have a different regional history here with textiles and cloth and flax to linen specifically in this area and tons of linen processing equipment and knowledge. So how can you kind of look at the kudzu here and look at what's going on in this moment, in this place-based um, kind of practice, how how do we work with kudzu? How do we process kudzu? How do we create kudzu cloth that makes sense specifically to this region right now? Kind of yeah, that's excellent. That's great. So what exactly is kudzu? And, you know, you all are talking about how it was introduced from Asia. So could you tell the listener who may not be living in the Southeast and is unfamiliar with it, like you were, Nika, um, what is this plant and why is it hated? Why is it loved? And go from there. Maybe I'll, I'll take a stab at, at answering this and then I'm going to jump off. Perfect, uh, okay. All right. What is kudzu and why is it hated? That's the, that's the question. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Kudzu is a, is a perennial leguminous vine and it's known by many names here in the South. Kudzu is a kind of Americanization of the Japanese name. Some people call it kudzu. Some people call it the mile a minute vine. Some people call it the foot a day vine. They're a little bit more, <laughs> it's a little closer. It's somewhere between a mile a minute and a foot of day is it's, uh, a foot a day is it's, uh, growth rate. This, that's scientifically studied. There, 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 it does grow a foot a day or more uh, under under prime growing conditions. So an incredibly fast growing vine with very deep roots. It's perennial, so uh, it gets established and it sticks around. It's very hard to to kill with through chemical means. And so people, well, okay, this is a little bit out of order. So it's a perennial leguminous vine. It was imported into the United States in the 1860s and first was kind of spread around as an ornamental porch vine. And then farmers started to experiment growing it, growing with it as a cover crop, uh, integrating it into their pastures and, and crop production systems. And it really started to take off in the 1930s when the USDA or, or the uh, the federal government initiated the Soil Conservation Service or Soil Conservation Corps. I can't remember what it's called at that point, but um, this was part of the New Deal, and it was they, they were paying people to plant kudzu, and this was one among many different 
kind of measures they were taking to curb erosion, which was a massive crisis that was going on at that time. We all know about the Dust Bowl, but a, a little bit less less known um, was that we had a equally severe erosion crisis going on here in the southeast. And this was a result of a couple centuries of farming, uh, mostly, you know, farming dr- driven by enslaved people and, and, uh, you know, extracting the, the kind of power and, and wealth of, of mm-hmm. West Africa and, and, and enforcing that labor to extract the wealth of the land here after, after colonizing and expropriating the people who are living here. So, um, you know, it's that, it's the same, it's the same mindset that was being applied and there's a kind of an interesting through line there. And, and so the land was, was severely degraded and we needed something that would grow really quickly to keep the soil from continuing to wash away into the ocean. And kudzu turned out to be this incredible solution to that problem and the the way kudzu behaves is it's it's deep rooted and grows quickly and where the soil the the vines are in contact with the soil for long enough it will form roots and so um it grows quickly covers the soil and holds it in place it's also as i mentioned a legume so it's fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere and making that nitrogen available to the soil community. And so it's not only holding soil in place, but also it's it's pretty effective at building soil. And so it was planted on a massive scale by the federal government. Also, there was a citizen group called the Kudzu Club of America that had 20,000 members at its peak in 1940. And their express goal was to plant as much kudzu as they possibly could. It was it was <laughs> widely considered to be the savior of the South for a few decades there. Mm-hmm. And people were harvesting it, grazing their livestock on it. All kinds of livestock love to eat kudzu. Goats are famous for it, but sheep and cows and horses uh, also really dig kudzu. Will chickens and other poultry consume any of the leaves or anything? I, I imagine they I imagine they would, yeah. I, okay. I haven't seen chickens to eat them very much. Say again, Elby? And you can grind it up too and mix it in with other feed. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So people have used it for hay, uh, uh, like, you know, pasturing animals, but also cutting and drying it for hay. And rabbits also really love kudzu. I'll be talk oh, nice. a little bit more about that. We're working mm-hmm. with some folks on that. So yeah, you know, people were harvesting kudzu and it was not really uh, too problematic in the landscape for a little while, but then things changed. And World War II happened, and I can pick up from here if you if you want, or keep going. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. I think you can. You got it from here. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, just say thanks for having me, y'all, and and uh, I, I look forward to hearing this episode. Yes, thank you for stopping by. And yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Justin. Nice to meet you, and thanks for all the work that you're doing there. And likewise, y'all take care. Good to see you, Nick and Abby. Bye bye. We're getting it rolling. <laughs> okay. All right, perfect. So we have already limited scope of culture of use that's been learned from the mid-1800s to early 1900s in the southeastern United States. And that scope of knowledge ranges from the 
high protein fodder for livestock to nitrogen fixing aspects and revitalization of soil and anti-erosion properties. But beyond that, it seems like, like what Nico was saying earlier too, there wasn't much knowledge around kudzu as a fiber or other kind of material. And there wasn't much knowledge around kudzu as both a medicinal and culinary plant in terms of the roots. So it was more just that limited scope of knowledge. And we have some hypotheses around what the federal government understood about kudzu at that time and then what was selectively not shared with Mm -hmm. farmers on a large scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And those hypotheses range from either there was blatant ignorance, which I find unlikely because there were agencies that would literally sail around the world buying on other nation states, agricultural practices, both traditional and more contemporary. And Mm -hmm. um, like there was like an office of fiber investigation that would sail around being like that was through the USDA. And they would cruise around the world being like, okay, well, rainy is like pretty useful, but like not, you know, there are these problems with processing, um, like a lot of bass fibers, like rainy is nettle, abaca is a type of banana, also called basho, paper mulberry, mm-hmm. a lot of these super abundant, um, very like meaty bass fiber kind of plants. A lot of knowledge was learned about them, um, but not shared because of King Cotton situation. Okay. Um, that's again, this is all like I'm like I'm not a doctor, but I personally <laughs> I know that no, I'm um, I uh, I'm not an expert on this, but um, Onika, go go for it. Well, I just wanted to say it's kind of like you know this idea of like hypotheses or like you know it can sound kind of conspiracy y in some ways, but there is some like founding to this. Because at the same time in the 1930s, kind of a similar time when, you know, people were being paid by the acre to plant kudzu. That was outlawed because nylon had just been discovered and was being pushed as a replacement and, and because of the durability. So at the same time when hemp and other bass fibers were losing their um, support here, which it used to be like a very common um, homespun um, mm-hmm. fiber and industrially processed fiber in this in this area and in the U.S. It was being pulled away from. So you could see when kudzu is coming and that narrative and that timeline, why maybe the fiber aspect of it wasn't something that was being um, shared. Okay. Yeah. And it seems like nothing has changed because corporatism is still having its way with everything in modern America today. Yeah. And that, that, um, leads to talking about misperceptions and some of the biggest um, misconceptions and biases that are held toward kudzu mm-hmm. specifically. And I say specifically because kudzu is very different than a lot of other abundant and invasive species because of this mass coordinated planting on a federal scale in the southeastern United States, the federal government planted a massive crop, 30s and 40s, like tens of millions of individual plants. And that's where you see these clusters of it, like farmlands. Oh, and this, this goes into the timeline now of, of we're at World War II, where that limited scope of knowledge 
virtually disappears within one generation because these small-scale agrarian systems that have been put in place then started to be replaced with basically like industrial ag. Yeah, that's right. World War II. Mm-hmm. So these smaller farmlands between the 50s and 70s, let's say, if you have 20 to 30 years where then, you know, goes from a big hurt or like the land being grazed consistently, those aerials are getting trimmed. So, so it's like an old planting site, an old growth stand site from the 30s on a whole mountainside. If that growth is being trimmed up by grazing for 30 or so years, and it doesn't necessarily look like there's kudzu growing there because the aerials are being maintained by those animals Mm. and enough action, enough activities happening on that land where it's not generating that above ground growth. But meanwhile, it's getting enough little blips of photosynthesis that those roots underground are generating like batteries. They're getting juicy and and building up. So sometimes we run into old growth sites where there are basically like underground crowns where you can see where all the topsoils piled above Mm. another generation of crowns that are below. And then Mm. you go above and there's like a whole Mm. set of crowns above that because these roots are generating into each other because of getting trimmed at the top. So if those old growth crowns aren't removed, then the plant just keeps growing and growing. So that leads into looking at how then that old growth, so it's like it's like there are underground batteries being built up for decades. And then when those farmlands are transitioning from being from having animals on them or from being kind of interacted with in the way that they had been for many years and essentially let let to go fallow because of those agrarian systems being disrupted. And then simultaneously a lack of like village scale knowledge of culture of use. The primary predator of the plant in the first place is human animals. Human animals are the number one predator of kudzu, both here where it's a non-native species and where it's a native species. So there are examples even where kudzu has a strong legacy of human-plant relationship, even in parts of the world where that exists, in Japan and China, where specifically in Japan, where near some more urban areas, the culture of use has diminished so much that kudzu now grows. Like, there's a picture that I see sometimes of on this subject of a, an amusement park in Nara, Japan. Mm-hmm. an abandoned amusement park covered in kudzu and it looks mm-hmm. like in georgia and it's very similar latitude to here too mm-hmm. uh, to this region that is so to tie into the the timeline and how the limited scope that small sliver of culture of and cultural connection between humans and kudzu in the southeastern united states from the 1930s to then 50s Post-50s, it starts to diminish to the point where then in the late 70s and 80s, there's a nearly complete disconnection. Aside from people who more intuitively were interacting with the plant, which there have always been, they mostly tend to be artists or other craftspeople, people who are 
maybe using other traditional crafting materials and then kudzus around so they'll integrate it into more traditional craft practice. Mm-hmm. That, that's always been happening. But then when when the misperception really starts to to strengthen is when kudzus so because kudzu was planted along areas that are very visible because it's where those original railways and roads and farmlands were packed into the earth. Yeah, the, the disturbed soils. Yeah. yeah. And then the kudzu was planted along those in those areas in the first place. That's why there's a misunderstanding too about the volume, the actual volume of kudzu. It seems like there's a lot more kudzu than there actually is. Hmm. And that's like estimations from both like all sorts of sources, like the federal government and all different kinds of academic sources. Um, estimations of kudzu growth vary by tens of millions of square miles. Wow. So it's, um, it's probably estimates of kudzu growth are probably way overestimated because it seems like there's a lot more of it just because they're of where those original planting sites were. Now, yeah, because I saw that um, Nature Conservancy was saying that it was 7 million acres. Do you think that's accurate? I I don't know. I've seen so many different figures that right. something we're actually hoping to find some research partners around and, um, yeah, do some more, like, start on a smaller scale, start in the counties where we're already working mm-hmm. and partner hopefully with um, people who can help with getting it into more kind of like a GIS assessment, forming a structure where we can assess, okay, how much kudzu actually is there in an area? How much of that actually is viable to treat it like a crop where it's already growing on existing farmlands, for example? Mm-hmm. And then to create systems and this is why it's all rooted in education too, is because it's kind of complicated because you do have to eradicate kudzu in areas where it's growing and affecting other species in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, like where kudzu is growing along immediate tree lines, it's important to get the kudzu out of the trees and you make kind of like a fire line between the kudzu and the tree line um, to make sure that it's not jumping into the trees and then um, over and out canopying and preventing photosynthesis. It's complicated because you also don't want to tell people to go dig up all the kudzu because it's planted in areas where it's been preventing erosion. So how do we educate? And that's why kudzu is such a wonderful plant partner, too, and we can learn so much from kudzu because you have to be looking at the entire picture, which is how we have to be operating as animals in our habitats anyway. Intelligently. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like we we are not part of nature. We are nature. Thank so you. Yes. We have a we have a lot of responsibility with that. It seems like there's resistance to mm-hmm. go there for some people because of the gravity and weight of then what that means. Because mm-hmm. then we have to take responsibility more. <laughs> right, right. And that's a huge issue that we discuss a lot, that Americans are allergic to personal responsibility and for their lives and their actions and what the implications of all that is. 
yeah, yeah. kudzu is like a metaphor for that. Kudzu is like that is that is kudzu, so it makes sense to be having that conversation. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's yeah. awesome. So, so um, part of the the shtick of our uh, podcast is it's called on the front lines of collapse because. We talk about our society. Uh, we're pretty sure it's peaked at how much we're going to be able to do, especially with uh, peak oil and, and other things like that. A lot of issues. So we talk about we talk about the issues, but then we also talk about solutions to the issues. So I just like to get into, and we can start with Nika with the fibers. Basically, all the different ways are just some of the most important ways that we can use Hatsu going forward. Uh, I'm really interested in the fibers because I just started looking at <laughs> different like weaving videos. Um, and I think it's, it's such a fascinating thing how, how all of that works. And we don't, I would say as a society right now, the vast majority of people, if you ask them where their clothes come from, it's from a store. They have no idea kind of the entire process that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And that's something it's, it's a lost, uh, I think art form that a lot of people have no idea how to do it. So what's some of the ways that we can use kudzu and we can start again with Nika and the, and the fibers. Well said. Yeah, it's true. People really um, aren't thinking about where their clothing comes from. And again, that's so I think a lot tied into this self-responsibility and responsibility and acknowledgement of where our clothing actually comes from. Cause if we lifted that veil, I don't think we'd be able to go into our closets and put on the same clothing or go into yep. the store, mm-hmm. the same clothing we buy both, Yes, from a farming and an agriculture perspective and from a workers' rights perspective and from the way that we put it together and kind of the ethics around every aspect from farm to final product. People don't realize, you know, you're closing. It either comes from a farm or it comes from plastics. And if it comes from a farm, which farm and how does that work? And so that's something really interesting when we think of kudzu because this idea of kind of this like wild foraging aspect of it, right? Like we're not planting this crop. This crop is here. So how do you work with it? You have to kind of reimagine kind of in some ways that narrative or those steps in creating cloth. Um, you're not starting with the seed and planting it and then building it and, and cultivating it and then harvesting it in that way. So that's something that's really interesting and different um, when thinking about kudzu um, in that way. But what's really special about kudzu cloth is the kudzu fiber itself is so shiny. It's like now everyone It's like I really want everyone to experience this and see this. And people, it's hard for people to believe when they come to some of our kudzu um, vine to cloth workshops or when I show people samples, they're like, that's not that can't be what it, that can't be the kudzu fiber. It's luminous. It's not like flax to linen. Linen's a wonderful fiber, but kudzu is even more wonderful, like in a kind of almost objective way in that it has that durability, but it's also like silk shine so you can almost think of it as this like luxury fiber which is so ironic in some ways with the hate towards and the reality of what the fiber actually is and how it operates so when i think of kudzu fiber i think there are so many possibilities and i think of regional clothing as well like we should all be wearing what's around us so our natural dyes our colors should be like based on the invasives that are in our area and are growing here like our value system and our ways of deciding what's beautiful and what we wear, if we're thinking about it from that regional context, like mm-hmm. everyone should be, or a lot of people should be wearing a lot of kudzu clothing, just because it makes sense. Um, and it's so, you can, I think of it as like when I'm working in the kudzu or I'm working on the land, I'm like, I wish I had some kudzu overalls right now because it's durable, 
but it's also beautiful. So it can be something when you're thinking from like, I have a fashion design background or I talk to people that are thinking about making clothing or designing clothing. It can like kind of fit into so many different categories. Or if you're a, a maker yourself or someone learning about how to make your own clothing or weave, or that's amazing. You can think about it in so many different ways. And what's cool about um, kudzu fiber is also there's this co-product. So when you separate the bass fiber from the core of the kudzu vine, you're left with also an another amazing material, the kudzu core, which can be woven to create like placemats or window coverings or or painting like for chairs or for many, so many things. That's just like where my head goes right now. But so many people's, you know, minds will wander to different ways of using it. And also it's great for paper making. So you can use the bass fiber and you can use the core for paper making, but the core is this leftover pro- like product for me when I'm working with the um, fiber. So I can make amazing paper with the core. And you can imagine like packaging mm-hmm. or uh, for these kudzu, for this kudzu clothing or storing it made out of that paper, which oh. is part of the process. So what I love about kudzu is the whole vine has use and kind of like the plant itself there's so many uses for every part of it and that's Mm -hmm. amazing or you can say uses or you could just say like ways to collaborate because I always Mm -hmm. think about when working with kudzu or any plant or any animal that we're really like we're having this question it's a collaboration and when I start like getting so focused on the uses then Mm -hmm. I think we get into that extractive mindset or those problems that people have had when working with any other plant and taking into that direction that we don't want to go um, and one last thing to say that I really get excited about when thinking about um, kudzu um, vine harvesting is working with partners. As we were saying, it grows along the roadways. And they're mm-hmm. like, even on the site where I'm now working, they're, you know, spraying because it's like the roadways, they'll spray by the roads. That kind of is owned by the municipality, right? Mm-hmm. right. Or the DOT, you know, they'll spray like, or the... Um, electrical lines if it grows up the electrical lines they'll spray in those areas and those are areas that you don't you know as a citizen have like that control over and i think it would be so wonderful to work with these organizations and say hey instead of paying people to spray it because it's not actually solving the problem at all or eradicating mm-hmm. or eliminating the cuts in those areas so you're just coming back every year and spraying it and it's coming back anyway so it's not even working and it's also so negative in so many ways as we know what if we could use that funding to have people harvest vine in those areas and then we can utilize that to create cloth which then can be utilized and used by people so it's like that layers and like imagining the partnerships with the plant but also the partnerships with the organizations that are maybe doing some of the most negative practices now how can we shift their mindset and shift that narrative so that's kind of what lb was talking about about education because if people yeah. don't understand and they know then we can't even start that conversation I love that because there's so many things that I love what you just said, but the connections that you're talking about between the people and the plant and, you know, and the economics behind it and also stopping the toxic sprain, for God's sake, we can please stop that. And then utilize getting people employed to go out and harvest these things. We have so many young people that are sitting in front of an Xbox or their TV watching Netflix or God knows what else. Absolutely. We could get them out there learning these skills with teachers like you, instructing them on how to utilize the world around them and be a part of nature instead of being you know, detached from it. And then I love how you can make clothes. You can make all sorts of fabrics for um, furniture. 
And for the paper, too, I didn't know about that. That was really awesome that you can use that. And just the connections are really important. And I like how you're talking about working with the plant instead of just having that kind of like Western dominating. What can I get for myself from this plant where you're looking at it from this plant has its own value and purpose and meaning in life. And how can I interact with it in a positive way that not only honors myself and, you know, how you need to make a living, but then also to work with that plant in a positive way like that is really inspirational. And we need more people like what you all are doing at Kudzu Culture, not just for Kudzu, but for everything in life. And we would just be on a much better trajectory as a, a society if we viewed it from that perspective. Now, LB, I did want to backtrack a little bit because I thought what you were talking about historically was really important that it seemed like, and Christopher Michael wrote a piece about uh, marijuana and cannabis growing and how it seems like there's a lot of similarities between how these people in government and corporations have financial incentive to pick and choose where we should direct our efforts into. And it seemed like there was this initial encouragement of growing kudzu to help with the erosion and farmer neglect of the land. But then it started to compete with, you know, King Cotton. Um, and so that was a big no-no. Well, it it was more, it, it never was competing with cotton. It was more that um, there was, most likely intentional withholding of the full spectrum of knowledge of the culture of use okay. of the plant, ranging from the fibrous applications, but then also the applications of the root to be food and medicine because they most likely didn't want people to go and dig up the root that they had just spent um, resources on planting and to wow. Like they most likely weren't wanting people to go dig up the roots they had just planted along the areas that were already becoming um, mudslide and desertified. Mm -hmm. and, um, okay. Had. So basically pointing out the harms and it's getting repeated now. And it's just these cycles of hyper compartmentalized Lockean kind of, we know like some people, some people know better than others. Like I'm speaking from the perspective of these people who make these decisions that they're mm -hmm. like, okay, I am trained in this way. This is my job. I'm making this decision and I think it's better or we think it's better that people don't know all the knowledge that we know around this plant or that's out there in the world because we, that's not going to serve our purposes. Right. Right. Now we're running into that again around how people think about and approach what what they call management mm -hmm. in this globalized world where I say so-called Anthropocene because I don't like calling it Anthropocene. I would like to call it something else because I I think I'm resistant to just admitting how human centric our mm -hmm. earth has become and certain the the narrative of the human species has been co-opted by a minority historically and then through colonization 
globalization, industrialization, all of these forces of that minority, that in a very short amount of time, the human species has gotten to this pace of existence that is truly unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get out of this, I would like to consider it kind of like a death grip Mm-hmm. Of, it is. of these forces that are still trying to hold on, but I, I have to I have to um force myself into a realm of like forced optimism because kind of deep down <laughs> I'm more like I I'm more like, whoa, this is why I get out there and literally dig the kudzu roots. That feels really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> out there digging the kudzu roots because it kind of simplifies a lot of this confusion and grief. These mm-hmm. feelings of things being so literally out of it's almost like it's almost like by by this minority's obsession with control things are now out of control absolutely and the way right. that people pers- the, and even just saying people i catch myself because i'll say like oh people think this about kudzu no people like people mean so much and what we say when we say people do this, that's to give too much agency and power to this minority. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. We we talk about it pretty often of the the cognitive dissonance of we know all of these things are going wrong. People don't want to talk about it because it's incredibly uncomfortable to talk about. And it is. There's a lot of things that we need to come and confront. Um, so that we can continue living our lives, I think, uh, morally and ethically. Hmm. But there's a lot of different things because, I mean, we, we recently talked about, uh, Bill Gates, but we talked about also like the, uh, manufacture of electric vehicles that used cobalt. And the majority of the cobalt comes from the Congo and the majority of the people digging up the cobalt are, are children. Right. So those are the things we have to kind of uh, confront because on one hand we say, well, electric vehicles are better for the environment. But then, you know, we, it, it's just kind of one of those things that we have to kind of understand and move forward. Right. And building off of that, what we've talked about before, because we talk a lot about mental health. And as we were on this journey, we've only been we, pretty much a year now with our, our working online, our articles and our website. It's become increasingly apparent that we live in a um, civilization of psychopathy where we have this small group of people that are dictating to everybody else how we need to live and act and work and believe in. And it's all extractive. These people are very narcissistic and they don't have empathy for others and they certainly don't care about the environment. And and they're not capable of understanding that we are nature. And they're always above it and they're always there to dominate it. And like you're saying, that's this is causing so many issues that, as you as you just said, that being in touch with nature is what's grounding you. It's giving you that purpose because we're designed to do that. We're supposed to be working in partnership with it, not dominating it, not abusing people, not constantly extracting. It's a management it's a partnership and a management that needs to be in balance. And as 
I, I love that you guys are also saying the same things because that's, you know, our view on it as well. Yeah, like no, like no management. <laughs> I mean, interaction, responsible and intentional interaction produces the same outcomes that are desired by so-called management, if that makes sense. They're actually better results hmm. because when when there's a mentality about a situation where it's too much thinking about black and white, good and bad, and not looking at the whole mm-hmm. picture, then that perpetuates these, basically it's like obsession with control and management sometimes also is out of touch with the realities that we're actually faced with. Mm-hmm. For people to be damning kudzu and then I'm driving by and I see kudzu on a roadside and assuming that there are lots of species within that kudzu growth because it's some of the areas where wildlife has to go. See other swaths of land that are scraped to mm. the ground so much that probably no bugs survived the scraping mm-hmm. to build some kind of non-porous, cheap, one-story cheap as possible, as few trees as possible in a parking lot where there are individual cars. Talk about the car conversation about electric vehicles. It's not about electric or not. It's about one person driving in a big car everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's beyond often the conversation about like, is it this or is it this? Often it's like, oh, it's, it's beyond this yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's and. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I want to, what really spoke to me and what you were saying about this idea of like healing or this idea of like, you know, people not wanting to acknowledge it. And it's kind of like how kudzu is this representation of this mismanagement or this out of balance. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. people, I mean, so much of the anger and the frustration is because it's like you're forced to face. You aren't in control. You tried so hard to be in control and this plan is growing. What is it? It was despite you, without your permission, yes. this plan. Yes here and it won't go away like wow so obviously I'm drawn to that plant because I'm like thank you <laughs> in some ways and I want to understand it more and you know but then at the same time you understand why there's that black and white mentality why there's so much you know hate or anger and you know this plant is bad and that we cannot control it in our traditional ways of controlling it and I think what's so beautiful about kudzu culture is well let's reimagine how we think about control and how we work with plants and then if we reimagine that we can actually work together and have a beautiful way of coexisting with kudzu in a way that works for everyone involved and gets us back in balance. But also this idea of Fiberhouse Collective was started with the concept of creating cloth that heals, because that's so true that so many of our relationships with the products and the things around us is like fundamentally like hurting us. And if we can't heal ourselves through these process of getting back into handwork or digging up the roots or interacting with nature in that way then regardless of how anyone feels about it we are like not in a space where we can show up to make a to make change or try to live our lives in this fulfilling and balanced way because we are fundamentally you know we're all connected right we are nature so mm-hmm. if we're out of balance we're out of balance so how do we within ourselves within our own lives within our own practice 
get back into this way of interacting and using our hands or working with nature and with kudzu or with all other aspects of nature that will then create things that we interact with. And that idea of like thinking about the materiality, that is healing. That's like, that's the basic. So even if kudzu doesn't like, even if you're not drawn to cloth or you're not drawn to farming in your own life, that's not something that is a big part of your life. It's like acknowledging that whatever is important to you, finding that way to, to get back to that, that way of making is inherently healing and will shift your narrative and your viewpoint on kudzu and many other things. And then you'll be able to have the headspace you need to, kind of reimagine how you're interacting with the world around you. Absolutely. I do have to go in the, and thank you all so much for your time. This, it's just, it's, there's so much to unpack yeah, and yeah, walk through. Is, yeah. I'm like, my notes are, I'm like, this is just what <laughs> the work is about. Um, I'm actually heading um, to the road, I'm down the road at a farmer's land down um, the road from Nika's working today. I'm meeting some diggers there. So what we're working on is we're building an a system, a cooperative system where there's raw material and product aggregation to support makers and producers and harvesters of kudzu and kudzu-based products. So I'm heading out to Grapevine Road um, where Nika's place is to meet some harvesters today. And then I did want to um, expand and touch on just a little bit around the legacy of extractive practices, especially in Appalachia, around logging, extractive agricultural practices, coal, tobacco, other historically extractive practices that have existed in communities that now face a lot of issues, including opioid crisis, and how a lot of those communities are also completely overgrown with kudzu. Mm. And wouldn't it be so awesome to have a structure and system in place in this cooperative structure where every year we can go to these communities and work with them to build these systems where every year there's a village level harvesting, both on the fiber part of things and then also with the roots and root processing for a wonderful strong alkaline starch that's mm-hmm. also traditionally referred to as kuzu starch um, that's both a culinary and medicinal starch and teaching people not only how to harvest and aggregate the raw materials but also how to do some village scale processing of the of the kudzu into products that they can that people can use themselves and then also sell as value added products mm-hmm. and that's the goal is to be able to instead of um perpetuating the negative biases and devaluing people's land who have already faced these extractive practices in their communities and not just their land being just being completely destroyed by these these industries, but also their own bodies and their um, ancestors and, and the, you know, their family members who have literally died for these industries. Um, and now what they have left is this land that now is currently devalued because a plant grows on it. 
Mm -hmm. And um, this plant is actually, it's not just an idea that kudzu is valuable. It's like there's an existing industry already surrounding kudzu throughout the world, surrounding the extracts from the roots and other parts of the plant used in a variety of culinary, herbal, and pharmaceutical products. So it's not just a hunch. It's like that market already exists. (laughs) How do we make the connections to be able to not just be thinking about kudzu as a potential resilient and regenerative crop for our regional future and something that's climate resilient too, Mm -hmm. but also be thinking about how to connect people in communities that need economic opportunity, how to connect these gaps in a system that otherwise could be pretty circular pretty quickly because of this existing global demand for especially the kudzu root and extracts, and then simultaneously be building around the traditional practices of kuzufu, the kudzu cloth, making as Nika was describing, but also as Nika's describing, there are parts of the plant that haven't really been explored, um, that with the legacy of fiber processing in our region, like Nika was saying earlier, that the traditional knowledge can commingle in a really beautiful way and collaborate in a beautiful way, like humans and kudzu itself, our interhuman connections are very important. And to learn from people who are facing different but similar challenges around how to preserve and build upon traditional knowledge in another part of the world where kudzu has a different history but but despite that difference it's still very similar because the importance of human and kudzu relationship is so powerful because we're the key predators to it and very easily if we stop preying on it then it'll keep going um mm-hmm. we have to keep going with it in the sense that we have to be interacting with it and, and tending with it and to be connecting through a plant with people across the world too is very powerful and we look forward to having more connection and collaboration and opportunities for cultural exchange. And I keep going and going, but another note about the the, the interesting overlaps with traditions and how there's a lot of knowledge that already exists, especially in Appalachia, around root digging. Traditionally in Appalachia, people who work in other, um, in a lot of growing or uh, farming during the winters, people will sometimes dig roots to try to make some supplemental income, and especially ginseng. So how do we collaborate with cultural legacy to then apply that generational knowledge to an overly abundant plant instead of a now over now ginseng's over harvested so mm-hmm. um, so whenever i see a we buy ginseng flyer i hang a we buy cut the root flyer by it. oh i love that yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah Thank you. Well, I, go. I think I don't know if it's wrapping up, but I just want to thank everyone so much for your time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A bunch of kids without kudzu. And all these <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for all of your time as well. It was, I think, like you said, we could go on for another three hours talking about it because it's so complex and so interwoven. 
with yeah, it's, the tentacles are, are are throughout so much of culture, of medicine, of you know the environment. So it's really beautiful the work that you all are doing, and we're so excited to talk to you today. And um, you know, how can folks follow and support your great work? Our website is www.kudzuculture.net, and you can sign up for our email list and get in touch via our website and. Um, we're on social media, Kids of Culture. Thank you all so, so much uh, for the conversation. As always, uh, like the plant itself, all the ways it can go um, has me, it gets me, I feel like a kudzu root in the wintertime, just flowing <laughs> with um, juicy, starchy ideas and energy. I love that. Really That's appreciate awesome. the opportunity. And I'm very thankful to co-founders and collaborators, Justin and Zev and Nika and all the wonderful volunteers and folks who attend workshops um, and folks like y'all supporting our work. And um, and be sure to check out Fiber House Collective as well. And Nika can share Fiber House Collective uh, contact information. Yeah. Well, specifically our Invasive Fiber Study Group, which is in partnership with Kudzu Culture. If you're in the region, um, in the Asheville area, we meet once a month, the first Thursday of the month at a local cloth, a, a, a gathering space for fiber folks. And, <laughs> we, and we share our notes. So if you're not in the area, we have this virtual notebook. We try to keep updated. I got a few I got to get, get on, but you can see all since the beginning kind of our notes of what we're doing and how we're processing Kudzu. So that way, you can do it too and you can reach out and, and be a part of the invasive fiber study group. Perfect. That's, that's excellent. We'll put all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much again for your time and keep up the great work. Thank you all so much. Take care. Bye. I really enjoyed that conversation with them. They are a wealth of knowledge with Kudzu and I love how they were connecting so many things together with government to corporations, to public policy, to local economies, to individuals. It was really beautiful. It couldn't have been more perfect because it's the stuff that we talk about all of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And when you go into it, you're like, well, okay, how can we keep this topic based on collapse? But uh, it fit it beautifully. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then when LB was talking about a group of people controlling everything, having to mm -hmm. dominate it all the time and just being obsessed with that, that's what we talk about with the narcissism mm -hmm. and the oligarchs really that have to control everything. And we didn't get to all the questions that we had, but that was okay because it was such a beautiful conversation with some really amazing people. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that I wanted to bring up was lawns and how come lawns are somehow acceptable to have with 40 to 50 million acres of lawn. And that's acceptable with all the toxic chemicals and the petroleum used for it, but what, less than 7 million acres or so, an estimate of that many acres in the South dominated by kudzu is evil. And what Nico was talking about was that control. Mm -hmm. Lawns are acceptable because we can dominate them. We control them. But kudzu, it wants to do its own thing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't play by the rules of domineering governments and upper class oligarchs yeah and the corporatists hate that yes mm -hmm. you know it's only acceptable if they can rape and pillage from the planet and make money off of it 
And that's what was interesting when I was talking about there was a lot of similarities between cannabis growing mm-hmm. and kudzu. I can see it because there's so many different things that you can do with the cannabis plant from, again, fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of the different, it's not just THC, it's THC, THCA, THCD, CBD. There's a lot of different chemical compounds to it. Mm-hmm. And the how the body reacts in the endocannabinoid system. So it is very similar because it was also vilified and it was vilified by uh, corporatists that, that were trying to get away from the fiber usage of it. And then so tried to play on the medicinal mm-hmm. as something that uh, corrupted the mind and, and made people uh, do crazy things. And, that it wasn't necessarily that it was competing with cotton. It was just that the local knowledge of utilizing this plant was deliberately being lost Mm -hmm. and manipulated. Yeah. 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 I I would say that that's a good way to say it because of all the medicinal purposes for it. They just drilled it down to, Oh, this is a cover crop. Um, Cows can eat it. Yeah. Don't look behind the curtain. Mm hmm. That's kind of how I interpreted. Gotcha. That okay. Because, because the the uh, the government on behalf of the corporatist then put out stuff because they're still doing it. They do it today. Uh, on behalf of the corporatist, put out certain information and then just keep other information mm-hmm. for it, just mm-hmm. like cannabis, mm-hmm. with the different health benefits that people have been using for thousands of years. Right. Um. In our research and in one of the videos that. Uh, LB and Justin were in they talked about the Chinese medicine and they have you know hundreds of different plants that they use for it kudzu was in the top 20 cannabis was also in the top 20 wow that's neat yeah so it, it's one of those things that has been it has been utilized for thousands of years for certain medicinal food benefits fiber and then all of a sudden, there are other competing crops that are maybe cheaper, maybe easier to use. And that industrial ag corporations benefit. And they own them. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So then they shove everything else down the rabbit hole. Yep. And I'll be talking about the what I call the neocolonial wealth pump of mm-hmm. Appalachia, where you have corporations that have no interest in improving the lives of the people here no interest in making things better they're only here to extract and that's that domineering narcissistic psychopathic mindset Mm -hmm. that these people are only capable of having yeah the part and i didn't want to interrupt her when when she was talking about it Uh, but when she was saying you know you can drive through these appalachian communities that maybe were were coal communities or all of them have had their resources extracted. Mm-hmm. And then you see the the mountains and the abundance of kudzu. Mm-hmm. And then you think about the childhood poverty in the area. Mm-hmm. And and it just starts to just not make sense about right. what we're doing. Right, right. Because we have this resource that, I mean, we just had an over an hour long conversation to talk about all the ways we can use it, all the misinformation that has been put out there by the government. Mm-hmm. And by other corporate entities uh, that that have a stake in it not being proliferated. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. 
and then you go to these communities and you, and you know that children can't get the basic necessities but this plant could actually provide a tremendous amount of cloth of economic benefit of nutrition and not only for the human aspect but also the animal aspect too that you know pretty much all livestock eat it and then as lb was saying that you can dry the leaves and chickens can eat it as well so yeah. it's also a, a wonderful protein source for poultry yeah absolutely and we've seen the chickens go after the sunchokes when they're still in the ground so it could be a similar thing that with the tubers of the kudzu yeah that's true we were just talking about the leaves but absolutely mm -hmm. that's a great idea i never even thought about that but yeah it's tons of starch mm -hmm. so why wouldn't they benefit from that yeah, the, that was that was really illuminating. I thought it was quite interesting. Also, I did want to say with at the end when Nico was talking about how we need to be helping people locally. Mm -hmm. It was very much EF Schumacher from Small is Beautiful, how we don't need more factories in Appalachia or anywhere else in the United States. We don't need uh, more technology, more government funds. We actually need less of all those things. And we need people to get back to basics using their hands and their minds to physically work to improve their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's encouraging people to make cloth, make medicine, make uh, fodder for livestock and poultry, make food from these staple crops such as kudzu. Yeah, and as Nika said at the beginning, she isn't even from the area. Mm -hmm. She's originally from New York. Mm -hmm. So if we can get people to have these um, these ideas to come into the area to come to make it better, not to extract from it, yes. but to come to make it better, to yep. say this is such an amazing resource that is being undereducated for the populace, to come in and say, okay, here's how we can use it, here's all of the different ways that we can use it for the community to, to benefit it. And then we can put it back into the community. Yes. Yeah. That's really important. What's really frustrating with this story is that this whole team is wonderful. Mm -hmm. They have excellent passion and purpose and drive to make their communities and their lives better and to work with rather than against kudzu. Funding is such a huge problem. And it's so frustrating because we had this conversation about Bill Gates where money's never been an issue mm -hmm. and the government just prints it for their, well, government and corporations are synonymous with each other at this point. And they have unlimited wealth, but you know what? They don't have the passion and the drive and they don't have these types of amazing people at the local level willing to get their hands dirty, yeah. literally and physically they could have stopped poverty in its tracks a thousand times over with the amount of money that they pump into stupid little pet projects. Yes. So if they actually talk to the people in the communities to find out what do you need? Mm -hmm. What can we actually do to help fix this situation of homelessness, of malnutrition, of not being able to get clothes and medicine and just the basic necessities of life mm -hmm. it could be fixed yes. so for these people who are doing such a great intensive work of trying to educate the populace to say listen it's not a miracle plan mm -hmm. but it's absolutely on the right track mm -hmm. yeah and we can work with it mm -hmm. you know and and have that partnership which is so important but 
as we talked to many times about mental health, narcissists are completely unable mm -hmm. to understand partnership with nature. They yeah. have to dominate. They have to control it. And that's why I love talking to them because you know they're not narcissists. Oh, yeah. Because they are passionate. They're there connecting with nature. They're not there to dominate it. And it's so beautiful to meet other people like that. And and not once do you see, oh, how great this plan is for me. Right. Or how I can benefit from it. Right. Or any of that. It's just saying there are so many different things that we can do with this uh, for the community that it it's an absolute travesty that we are not doing it. Exactly. So thank you so much for joining us on another wonderful conversation. We really encourage you to check out Kudzu Culture as this team is working very hard to make this wonderful plant an asset to the community. Till next time, friends.